Please open up your Bibles, if you would, and go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 17. Now, it is obviously football season. When football season rolls around, you'll discover, because I am a football fan, I will start using football illustrations in my sermons. So I've got one this morning that made me think of leadership. Back in 19, the season, 1993 football season, the best team in the league was who? Come on, say it. Cowboys, come on. Yes, the Cowboys. The Giants. Are you kidding me? They're involved in this little illustration, but not, they weren't the good team. The Cowboys. Early 90s, I was a Cowboys fan, am a Cowboys fan still. And the best team on the planet, football-wise, at that time was clearly the Dallas Cowboys. They had just won a Super Bowl, beating the Buffalo Bills, and, and now they were hoping to get to their second consecutive Super Bowl. Now, who were the, who were the leaders of the Cowboys during that time? Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, and who was the other one? Emmett Smith. But there was a game that season where Emmett Smith rose to the top and clearly demonstrated that he was genuinely the leader of the Dallas Cowboys. Not only on the field, but off the field. Emmett Smith was really the heart and soul of that team. Michael Irvin was the vocal one. Troy Aikman may have been the one that was most consistent, but But the heart and soul of the team, the leadership of that team was Emmitt Smith. And he solidified his role as leader in a game against the Giants of that season. That Dallas would win 16 to 13. But early on in the game, after a 45-yard run, Emmitt Smith was taken down and landed. This was before the years of, 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 we now have this turf that looks like grass. This was back when AstroTurf was like concrete. And he gets pinned to the ground and in the process separates his right shoulder and bruises his sternum. Immediately they took him to the locker room. They, they were able to reset the shoulder and everything and, and asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, there's no question what I want to do. I'm going to keep playing. And he came back out in the game and he kept playing that game with one arm. That right arm was dangling almost all game long. And as a running back, you know, you've got to have both arms. You've got to protect the ball. You've got to fend off the tacklers, and he ran that whole game with one arm, tucking that ball into his left arm. He would run for 168 yards in that game and make 10 catches during the game. It would be his last run of the game that would get the Cowboys in field position to kick the winning field goal that would clinch the NFC East for them that year, which paved the way for them to go on and win their second Super Bowl. And I remember from that point forward, there was no question in my mind as a young kid, as I watched the Cowboys, who the leader of that team was. It was clearly Emmett Smith. He was willing to do whatever it took for his team to win that game. When I think about the Apostle Paul, an image like that of Emmett Smith, but much grander sacrifice comes to mind, of a man who ran as hard as he could run the race that he was given, who despite many trials and many setbacks and many pains, kept on running, and kept on running. Near the end of his life, he would say this to Timothy, his protege, his his son in the faith. He would say this to him in 2 Timothy 4, 6. And by the way, Timothy was the pastor, one of the elders at Ephesus. Keep that in mind. He says this in 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This was Paul's life, was to run this race no matter what the cost. And in the process, he was a leader. He was an example to be followed to all the church and to all the elders. When elders look for who they are to follow and they look at the scriptures... First and foremost, they look to the apostles. The apostles are our first model to look at. You can look at some of the elders in the scriptures like Timothy and Titus and James, but the mantle was passed on to the elders from the apostles. Not the same type of authority, but the same position of leadership over the church to continue to lead the church spiritually. And so the apostles, like Paul, 
we look at and we see that they gave it their all. So in this series that we're in right now regarding spiritual leadership, we've asked what is spiritual leadership. We've asked who are spiritual leaders to be, as in what does their character need to be. And we'll touch a little bit more on that today. But today I really want to focus on why do we need spiritual leaders? And today we're going to be, as I've already mentioned, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. So if you would please stand as we get ready to read this passage of Scripture. The context here is that Paul is finishing his race. He's going back through on his final missionary journey. He's going back through the towns, the cities where he has preached the gospel and established churches. He's encouraging them. In this case, he's encouraging the Ephesian elders. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And you know what awaits him in Jerusalem? Is arrest and imprisonment and trials that would eventually get him all the way back to Rome. And so Paul is on the last leg of his race. And so we read in Acts chapter 20. Beginning in verse 17, these words. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, sorry, to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the flock of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give. Than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. And I know we can't do it justice in just one sermon today. But, Father, we're going to give it our best shot. But, Lord, we know that we're hard of hearing. And so we pray that you'd enable our ears to hear. And, Lord, um, my mouth doesn't work right most of the time when it comes to speaking the gospel and speaking the truth. So, God, I pray that you'd enable my mouth to speak. Because without you enabling us and giving us the grace to do what we do, we're totally lost. We're totally helpless. So we pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to have his way this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The church at Ephesus plays a major role in helping us understand what pastoral leadership is all about and even what church health looks like. First of all, we have Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. We, we preach through verse by verse here at this church. It took us, a, uh, I think, about a year to do that. And then we have First and Second Timothy. And as I already mentioned, Timothy was the pastor, one of the pastors at Ephesus. And then we have Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We have the Lord Jesus giving a letter, giving a word to the church in Ephesus. 
And then we have here in Acts chapter 20, Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. So the, the church in Ephesus is really important as you study just that church to help us understand what leadership in the church is all about and what health looks like in a good church. Now, I did a much more in-depth treatment of this passage last year, January 22nd through February 19th, as part of our series through the book of Acts called um, He Reigns. And so those are available on the internet if you want to go look for those. The reason I say that is because we're not going to be able to give it as much of an in-depth treatment today as we did back then. Matter of fact, it took me, I told someone last week, it took me three sermons. Actually, I was wrong. It took us five sermons to go through this passage of Scripture last year. I'm not going to do five sermons in one today. I just want to bring up three main points from the text today. Three main observations about why we need elders. But before we get to those three points, a few observations. As you notice from the text here, Paul spent three years in Ephesus planting that church. He had left the church with structure. He had left it with order in place. And we know that because they had elders. Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Notice again what we've noticed every week so far as we've been studying elders. Plurality. Elders, plural, of the church, singular. And this verse also shows us how loved Paul was. It says that they traveled from Miletus, which was a two to three day journey from Ephesus. So they, a two to three day journey from Ephesus to come and to hear Paul and to hear what he has to say. And then a two to three day journey back. They loved Paul. They wanted to hear from their mentor, their friend, their brother. What we have here then in the rest of these verses is a direct address to these elders, to these friends and these fellow pastors of Paul's. These are men that he mentored. These are men that he commissioned into gospel service. Paul knows that this is going to be his final word to them, his final exhortation to these beloved brothers, these Ephesian elders. So what does Paul choose to say to them? To me, that's very important. Just thinking about the context. You've got one more chance to speak to the elders of Ephesus. What are you going to say to them? He's going to say these words to them. So this means this is very important for all elders. These words that we have here. So this morning, I want us to focus on the fact that in this address to the elders of Ephesus, we see, among other things, why elders are needed in the church. And I see three reasons why elders are needed in the church. And here's the first one. Elders are needed in the church. The church needs elders because they need someone to lead the way in sacrificial service to the body. They need someone to lead the way in sacrificial service to the body. What I mean by that is that elders are given to the church to set an example for the church to follow. Last week we talked about this. We talked about how the elder's life is to be a model, an example for all the body to follow. And that's why elders are to be above reproach. Now, in, in ancient Near East culture, shepherding culture, shepherds didn't lead the flock by driving the flock places. They actually would walk in front of the flock. The shepherds of those days would walk and the sheep would follow them. And they would lead that way. So we don't have to have the wrong image in our mind. We're, we're a cattle culture. We're not a sheep culture. So we think of driving. And I think some pastors treat their church like that. They want to drive the church in a direction. No, no, no. What elders are called to do is to be out in front and to lead the church, not drive the church. So we see that in this text, as we've seen in other places in the New Testament, that Paul puts himself forward as an example to be followed, and he wants these elders to follow his example and also to in turn be examples to the flock. The reason he's giving them an example of his life is he's saying, I want you to be like this so that the flock can follow your example just as you follow my example. It's the same thing that was taught in 1 Peter 5, 3. Paul wants the elders here in the church to lead as he led. Verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He said, You yourselves know. You know how I lived. Paul's life wasn't hidden. It was an open book. The people could tell from the way he lived that his message was genuine. His walk backed up his talk, if you will. They could testify to his character. He said, you yourselves know. No one has had to tell them about Paul. They didn't have to get reference letters. Is this a good guy or not? They knew from simply looking at his life. 
When it came to Paul, they didn't have to ask. They knew. They themselves knew Paul. Paul, from the first day that he had set foot in Asia, he had lived with them. As I said earlier, he was with them for about three years. So they knew him well. They knew how he lived. They knew how he believed. They knew how his beliefs were fleshed out in the everyday life. And Paul wanted his elders to follow that example. That means, friends, that pastors should desire to be known by their congregation, meaning they should aim for good, solid, and even close relationships within the body. Elders should desire and aim for close relationships in the body. I once had a pastor counsel me not to have friends in the church. He said, friendships in the church are too messy. He went on to say, so all of my close friends are outside of the church. Well, that may make life easier. It may make life less complicated, less complex, less risky. But it's not biblical. It's not what Paul did. Paul could say, you yourselves know how I lived among you. He was right there with them. Paul lived among the church body, meaning he wasn't above them or separate from them. He was a part of them. That's the way it should be. Now, of course, relationships in the church are messy. That's because we're sinners. If you don't want messy relationships, don't get to know anybody. Relationships in the church are going to be messy. But it's by living amongst each other's mess that we are in position to help each other grow. A pastor can only be an example to the flock if he's living among them. If he's building genuine relationships. And I understand the temptation. I feel it strongly every day. Oh, these, these church relationships, oh, they're just too hard. And when's God going to send us some normal people, all right? I mean, goodness. Not, I didn't mean to offend everybody in the room in one. But if we're honest, we've all got baggage. And we're all coming with our baggage. And the elder's job isn't just to point out the baggage. He's to go help pick it up and carry it. As that is all of our tasks to do. To carry one another's burdens. And that's what Paul did. He lived among them. That's why pastors should be above reproach. Richard Baxter, in his great little book called The Reformed Pastor, said that an elder must be careful not to unsay what he says from the pulpit by the way he lives. Unsay what he says from the pulpit by the way he lives. So Paul sets an example, he's, he, and he expects the elders to do the same. But what type of example did Paul set for these elders regarding the leadership that they were not only to emulate but to model? Well, first, he wants elders to be servant leaders. Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord. This is what he did. This is what he wants them to do. He wants elders to serve. The word here is the verbal form of the word doulos. You know what that means. That's slave or bondservant. So, like Paul, elders were to be slaves. But notice who they serve here. Who they are indentured to. Who they are slaves to. It says, serve the Lord. Although Paul was one of them and lived among them, he didn't work for them. Neither do the elders. Elders serve the church by being slaves to Christ. Elders serve the church by being slaves to Christ, the chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls. So Paul served the church, but he sought only to please Christ, Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I were still trying to please man. There was a time in Paul's life when he was trying to please man. It was when he was a Pharisee. He wasn't still trying to please man. All he desired was to be a servant, a doulos of Christ. Elders will only serve the congregation well if they are subject, first and foremost, to Christ. What type of service to the local church does slavery to Christ produce? What type of service is Paul wanting elders to copy here? Well, we see as we continue in verse 19, it says, serving the Lord with all humility. You may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very humble of Paul to ask these elders to copy his example. That doesn't sound humble, does it? Copy me. But we'd be wrong. Paul was a very humble man. You see, the prideful man says, 
I am better than you. The humble man says, follow my example. Because his shortcomings are going to be on full display. It takes humility to say, follow my example. Because you know, outside of Christ, no one has walked perfectly with the Lord. So when Paul says, follow my example, he also says things like 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He says things like in Ephesians 3, 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He says what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul was a humble man. When he says, follow me, it's not a prideful stance of, I'm better than you. It's a humble stance of saying, come follow me as I follow Christ. With all my insufficiencies and all my failures, come follow me. Paul was humble because he knew who he was ultimately serving. He was serving Jesus. And he knew what Jesus had accomplished for him through the gospel. That makes for a humble leader. Elders will be humble to the degree that they get the gospel. Let me say that again and it applies to all of us. We will be humble to the degree that we get the gospel. That's why like in our Bible study today when we talk about regeneration is a work of God and not man. If you don't get that, guess what? Open door for pride. You don't get the gospel and don't embrace the full gospel. You leave little open doors for pride. Yeah, I'm glad I was born again. Glad Jesus did that for me when I did this for him. A pastor and a church member will be humbled to the degree that we understand and get and embrace the gospel fully. Elders must also copy Paul in that they should lead with passion and sacrifice. Again, look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You can just see Paul's love for the church coming out in these verses. He was moved to tears for the sake of the church. Now, we don't know exactly what he was shedding tears over, but you don't have to be a pastor long to have some things come your way that you want to cry about. It may be the, the sheer mess that a church member in the church is making of his or her life. It may be unrepentant sin in a church member. It may be discontentment or lack of joy in the whole body. It may be pain or suffering that a church member is going through. It may be the pastor's own overwhelming sense of inadequacy. There's plenty to cry about if you love the church. Believe me, pastors who care for the church should, like Paul, be moved to tears. Paul even says it again in verse 31. I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Admonish means to warn. He so cared for the body that even in his warnings he was moved to tears. I see a lot of pastors get moved to anger in their warnings. But Paul was moved to tears in his warnings. That's how much he loved the sheep. Elders should love the flock like that, which means that they should be willing to make sacrifices. For Paul, it came in the form of trials that happened to him through the plots of the Jews. Paul suffered much for the sake of the church. Stonings, beatings, shipwrecks, imprisonments, slander, you name it. You can read the list in 2 Corinthians 11. And we know from Philippians 4 that he would often go through financial trials, but he never complained. He never exercised his right for the churches to pay his salary. He didn't demand that the churches give him money. He modeled Christ in his behavior. Verse 33 of this passage. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He was willing to suffer anything. He was willing to go without. He worked hard and sacrificed himself for the sake of the church. And he was willing to say all this to the elders because he expected them to follow his example. Friends, pastoring is not easy. A survey I heard recently said that, and I couldn't believe this when I heard it, but it was a reputable source, that each month 
1,500 pastors leave the ministry. Now, some of those do so because of moral failure. But the majority of that 1,500 cite depression or church conflict as the reason they leave. Depression or church conflict as the reason they leave. So you should be praying for pastors. Not just me, other pastors you know. Pray for pastors to find the strength that Paul found, who set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, like Emmett Smith in that ball game. Set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, wouldn't waver from the task, verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That last verse there. I do not account my life as anything. Emmett Smith may have been willing to give up a shoulder, maybe risk his career to win that ball game. But Paul was willing to give up his limbs and his body and his life for the sake of the gospel. And he wanted pastors to follow his model. So Paul set an example for elders to follow, serving the Lord and doing so with humility and with tears and even in trials. And notice the next thing, verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. He didn't shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. So he not only led the church, friends, he also fed the church, which leads me to my next point. The church needs elders because they need someone to feed the word of God to the body. Where do shepherds lead? Shepherds lead to pastures, places where the sheep can eat, to streams where the sheep can be refreshed. Verse 20 again, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at what we read a minute ago in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And what was that ministry? Continuing in verse 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So that was Paul's aim, was simply to preach the gospel, to testify to the gospel, to declare the gospel. He goes on in verse 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Elders exist to feed sheep and to feed sheep the word of God. Let's walk through these passages a little bit. Notice, first of all, that it takes courage to preach and teach the word of God accurately. Verse 20, I did not shrink. And again in verse 27, I did not shrink. This phrase means to pull back in fear. So the image here is, you know, if you're going, let's say you're walking through some scary haunted house or something, something pops up, what do you do? You normally jump back in fear. That's the image here that Paul is saying, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the gospel. He didn't show fear. It took courage to preach and teach the word of God accurately. It implies boldness. Friends, it's not always easy to proclaim what the word says. Many sheep don't want to eat what they're being led to. It's not easy to exhort people to apply the word. People like generalities. But when the application hits home, they sometimes don't like it. They don't want to digest the food. They oftentimes get mad. And as I heard one pastor say, they don't get mad at God. They get mad at the mailman. Usually. And this is hard because all pastors, because all pastors are sinful, all pastors want to be liked. It's a constant temptation. Any pastor who tells you, oh, I don't care about being liked is lying to you. Pastors want to be liked. I mean, no pastor stands up and hopes that people hate him at the end of the service. I mean, that's not the way it works. Don't get up and say, well, I hope everyone just really hates me this morning. There's an innate desire to be liked. But what drives Paul and what should drive all elders isn't a desire to be liked by the flock, but a desire to give the flock what they need. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was 
profitable. Profitable is what they needed. What was good for them? What was beneficial for their spiritual health? I mean, all of you probably experienced this, except for these young kids who medicines today, they, they taste like bubble gum. When I was a kid, medicine tasted like what it is. Just horrid, putrid junk. Oh, And I remember my mom trying to get me to take medicine. I remember one specific thing, and this isn't even the bad medicine. Remember those little orange aspirins? Those were supposed to taste good. It tasted like vomit. All right, those little orange aspirins. And my mom wanted me to take those, and, and she would even crush them up. Did your mom do this? She'd take two spoons, crush them up, and then put a little orange juice in it and say, take it. And I'll never forget, I didn't want it, didn't want it. And she put it in my mouth, and I went, and spit it out of her. And my mom's demeanor went from, take it, take it, to you better take this down your throat right now, young man. And I mean, just changed immediately. I mean, boom, whoa. Mom, incredible Hulk mom all of a sudden. It may have been because she had aspirin all over her face. I don't know. But that's the way the church is. I'm I'm sorry to say it. It is. It's the way the sheep are sometimes. This is what God's Word says. I don't like it. It's because my spiritual taste buds haven't been transformed enough yet. I don't like it. Elders make sure they give the church what they need, what's profitable, not necessarily what it wants. And churches, friends, need to ask pastors to give them what they need, not what they want. You demand from your pastor to give you what you need. Mom, I want the aspirin. You demand it of me and any other elders in this church that God raises up. You demand that we give you not necessarily what you want, but give us what we need. What we need. How did Paul carry out this task? Look at the rest of verse 20. Teaching you in public and from house to house. Public was large group settings. House to house was small group settings. Okay, this is the model in the scripture. Large gatherings and small gatherings. Okay, there is a teaching and a declaration that must occur in both types of settings. Now, church growth gurus have tried to split these two things. There's large gatherings and there's small. And one of them needs to be your foyer. Or your front door to attract people. And the other one, it needs to be your living room where you get a little bit deeper. So most churches will make their large Sunday gathering for unbelievers to attract them and call it the front door. And then they'll make their small group gatherings a time for believers, what they would call their discipleship, their living room time. I'm sorry, I don't see that dichotomy in Scripture. It seems to me Paul did the same thing in both places. It seems to me that he simply preached the profitable word of God in big groups and in little groups. Why do we try to tamper with the word of God? What we read here, the word specifically says this profitable word is. What is this profitable word? Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. Repentance and faith. That's what Paul preached. The gospel is this message that should be on the lips of elders all the time. It is the power to save. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the gospel not only is the means of salvation, it's the means of growth. Colossians 1.5 Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. And indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. The elders keep preaching the gospel because the gospel is the means by which even believers keep growing. So we do what we did this morning in the small group, by the way, and remind ourselves about what regeneration is. So when the world says, I don't like that, we can say... But Jesus said it in John 3. And we can feed ourselves with the gospel and make ourselves stronger. This gospel message is is what the elders have to keep coming back to. That was Paul's ministry. Verse 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, which is the same in verse 25 as proclaiming the kingdom. And so Paul kept coming back to the gospel and the kingdom because everything in the scriptures pointed to the gospel and the kingdom. Everything pointed to the cross. And that's why he says in verse 26, 
that he did not shrink from declaring to you what? The whole counsel of God. Now, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. I'm not sure how he got through the whole counsel of God in three years. He's a much faster preacher than I am, apparently. Or his sermons were much longer, which they were because we know young men would fall asleep and fall to their death during some of his sermons. But he preached the whole counsel of God. All Scripture points to Christ, therefore all Scriptures declare the gospel. The gospel, therefore, is the key for evangelism, it's the key for discipleship, it's the key for worship, it's the key for counseling, it's the key for everything we do as a church. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Elders must be gospel-centered. That's the only way they can feed the sheep. Look at the verbs in this passage. Declare, teach, testify, proclaim. There's a variety of ways and a variety of venues, but one message. Paul is calling on these elders to preach all God's truth to all God's people by all God-ordained means. We broke that down a little bit more when we did these sermons a year and a half ago, this, this passage. If they will do that, if elders will do that, then they will faithfully feed God's people. So elders are to lead, elders are to feed, but finally, as we read in the scriptures over and over and over again, The church needs elders because they need someone to heed the real dangers facing the body. Lead, feed, and heed. Good shepherds lead the flock, and they lead them to good food, so they feed them. But perhaps one of the most important things shepherds did in the ancient world was to protect their sheep from various dangers. Both dangers that the sheep might inflict upon themselves by wandering, and dangers that might be inflicted upon the sheep by predators. Shepherds were to heed those dangers. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Pay careful attention, verse 28 says. The idea here is to stay awake, be vigilant, be on guard. Paul tells them, first of all, to be on guard regarding their own souls. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Self-deception is the most powerful deception. There is always a temptation to look out there and to deal with the sin out there while neglecting in here. It's much easier for us to see what's going on out there. That family, that guy, that Christian, that church. The call here is for us to look here first, especially for elders. Examine yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Paul here is saying that in order for an elder to protect the flock, it starts with him protecting himself. That's what makes a healthy congregation. I used this illustration before. When you're on the airplane, and well, hopefully this has never happened, but if it has, they tell you about if the cabin were to lose cabin pressure, what would happen? Little things fall down, right? Little air masks. And what do they tell you to do? Put it on yourself first, and then your child. Why? Because if you're fumbling around with a child, and you pass out, you're both in trouble. Same thing here. Elders, look to your own self first. Watch out. Be careful. Pay attention so that you can care for the church. Listen, this means that the church should push for elders to care for themselves spiritually. Let me say that again. Not many churches do this. The church should say, Pastor, I want you to take care of yourself spiritually. I want you to be spiritually refreshed. I want you to be spiritually restored. I want you to be spiritually healthy. Because only when you're in a healthy state can you help us be in a healthy state. Not many churches push that for their pastors. Well, he's supposed to give it all. Right. But he's also supposed to be healthy. So that he could care for the flock. Elders are called to pay attention to the spiritual lives of the flock as well. Pay attention to yourselves and to the flock. 
To the sheep, it may seem nosy or opinionated or intrusive. But, you know, the elder may even fear that as well, that he's being too nosy. But to neglect to pay attention or to neglect to deal with issues when they are discovered in the lives of the sheep is to neglect his job, his duty as a shepherd. Hebrews 13 says that elders are keeping watch over the souls of the church and that they will have to give an account. Elders should do this happily and willfully because they understand who it is that has given them this mandate, who these sheep ultimately belong to, and who it was that bought the sheep. Do you see the trinity here in this passage? Who gave the elders their mandate? It says here that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Elders vigilantly watch themselves and the sheep because their commission comes from the Holy Spirit and they are enabled by the Holy Spirit. And then we read this. Who do these sheep belong to? It says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. The church does not belong to the elder. It belongs to God the Father. They are his precious possession. And he purchased them, what? With the blood of the Son, which he obtained with his own blood. This is a stunning thing for Paul to say. God is spirit, thus he is immaterial. He does not have blood. Yet, the blood here is called God's blood, which means that this is referring to the 100% human blood shed by the Son, who is 100% God as well. Jesus bought the sheep with that blood. This drives the elder. His commission is from God the Holy Spirit to serve the sheep that belong to God the Father, who were purchased with the precious blood of God the Son. That's what drives the elder. He understands the value of the sheep that way. When he understands the Trinitarian nature of how the sheep were purchased. You know, I used to work at a hospital, Hendrick Medical Center in Abilene, Texas. And I had some interns working for me. And there was one time when we were shooting a video, the hospital had a helicopter. And we were shooting a a video about this helicopter. But we had to move a bunch of cars They were in the parking lot so we could get the right shots that we wanted to get. I was a video producer at the time. One of the cars belonged to the hospital president. And I didn't want to. I had the intern move that car. All right? They went and got the keys. The intern got in that car and he moved it. I didn't want to touch that car because I knew the president of the hospital, if I messed up that car in any sort of way, then I'd be in trouble. I understood the value of that car. Now, there was another car right beside it. It was probably just the same type of car, but... That car wasn't purchased by the president. This car was. And elders who treat the church like it's cheap don't understand how it was purchased. There's a precious nature to what elders are called to do. Elders who understand this glorious Trinitarian work that undergirds and drives and gives value to their ministry are elders that will take guarding the flock seriously. But they also must understand the nature of the enemy. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves are false teachers that Paul said would arise in the church. And notice a few things about them. They're deadly. It says fierce wolves not sparing the flock. Shepherds in the ancient Near East knew that wolves were coming into the pen not to play around with the sheep. They were coming to kill, steal, and destroy. Elders must realize this. There is a temptation, and I feel it heavily. You guys, many of you know me well, and you know my weaknesses. I feel it heavily that in the spirit of grace, to try to assume that wolves really aren't wolves. I'm like Little Red Riding Hood sometimes. Oh, what big ears you have. Maybe it's still Grandma, though. Oh, what big teeth you have. Maybe it's still Grandma, though. And there's pastors like myself that are weak on that end of the spectrum, That it's not until we realize that actually the person in the bed swallowed grandma. And then it's too late. Much damage has been done. Now the other end of the spectrum is for it to be grandma. Grandma's having a bad day and you think grandma's a wolf. That's the other end of the spectrum. So elders have to be vigilant, have to know their doctrine. Have to pay close attention to what's being taught. And it's hard because wolves aren't only deadly... They're also disguised. Verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men. Wolves rarely come in looking like wolves. Some of the very elders Paul is speaking to here, men he mentored, would end up being wolves. That is a terribly frightening passage of Scripture right there. 
By their very nature, they're disguised. Paul, in his letter to Titus, calls them hidden reeves. Jude tells us that they, are, that they creep in unnoticed. They're crafty, sneaky, deceitful, disguised. Elders must be vigilant because of this, or else they too will be deceived. So wolves are deadly, they're disguised, and they're duplicitous. Look at the rest of the verse here. Speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They twist things. They take truths of Scripture and distort them to mean something they do not. The sign of a false teacher is that he's often giving you new ways to look at old texts. Be careful when a pastor says, let me tell you something you've never heard from this passage of Scripture before. That's a, that's a red flag, friends. You've got to be careful. Wolves will often give you a meaning to a text that relies solely on his interpretation. Wolves will tell you to ignore what others have said, even ignore what Christians have said in history. Ignore orthodoxy. Let me tell you what this means. Wolves will explain away the clear meaning of text to convince you to embrace his meaning. Wolves twist, distort, in order to draw disciples away after them. After them, they're arrogant. They lead people away from Christ to following them. They point people away from the gospel and to themselves. And these wolves are all over the place in the church. They were in Paul's day, they are in our day. So in light of this, Paul says in verse 31, be alert, be alert. Pastors, elders, overseers who do these things, who lead and feed and heed the dangers that are out there, pastors who do these things can rest easy knowing that they've done their job and ultimately the growth of the church is in God's hands. You get that sense from what Paul says here as this passage comes to a close. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What peace. I just, I'm just trusting you over to God, which he was doing anyway. But here he just says, Listen, I'm no longer going to have any pastoral influence in your life. But he can rest easy. You see, if you're a pastor, if there's an elder who hasn't dealt with false teaching in the church, he cannot rest easy at night. I speak from experience. It'll keep you up, up, and up. Paul could rest easy. I commend you to God. And, and the, the gospel of his grace, the word of his grace, the gospel. Friends, look for elders who will give everything they have to the flock. Elders who will commit themselves to one church. Elders who will pastor like Emmett Smith ran that football that day. Right before those words that, that I read earlier when I was doing the Emmett Smith illustration that Paul spoke about himself finishing the race, right before those words, he says these words to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Run that race. Finish that game. There's pain. Yes. This is the type of men that God says the church needs. These type of men. The average pastor stays in a church three years in America. Three years. And I think part of that's the reason. There's some reasons that he needs to leave. Part of that is he can't fulfill this ministry. It's too hard. And part of that is the church is beating him up. He's beating him down. So Harbins, as we add pastors, add elders, let us add elders who we can encourage to lead, who we can encourage them to feed us. 
And we will listen and submit to their leadership because we know that they have been given to the church to heed the dangers that are facing the body. Let's pray. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I mentioned in the sermon that Paul was gospel-centered. It's all he preached was the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It's the only reason that he was able to preach was because of what Christ had done in him. And that's how he ends. He trusts them to the gospel. The gospel is going to do a work to continue to grow them. So as we get ready to pray here in a second, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me urge you to hear the gospel. And here it is. Friends, who are you? You are a sinner, fallen way short of the glory of God. You have rebelled against the holy God. And he is a holy God. Holy and perfect and righteous and just and absolutely just to condemn you to an eternity in hell because of your sin. Even a little sin, a white lie. Who you are is you're a sinner. Who he is, he's a holy God. So what's your problem? Your problem is you have no way to reconcile yourself with a holy God. No way. So what's the solution? You don't have a solution. Christ is the solution. God provided the solution. He sent Christ to die on behalf of sinners to absorb his holy wrath on their behalf and to give them his righteousness so all that put their faith in him are indeed children of God because their heart has been made new. Now they want God and before they, all they wanted to do was hate God. Hear the gospel message this morning. And as the Holy Spirit moves in this place, if you're not a believer this morning and you've heard this gospel, cast yourself upon God, upon Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Heavenly Father, we close now, getting ready to go to the table, and I know we're running a little late, but Father, I pray that we would not let a clock steal what we're going to do at a table here in a second. So God, I pray, Lord, that you turn our hearts toward you, As we drink this cup and eat this bread. Heavenly Father, I can't help but think about what Paul was telling the elders. That this church was purchased by his blood. So let the Lord's Supper this morning, Father, remind us of what kind of elders we're looking for too. Obviously, blood-bought elders but elders who aren't ashamed of the blood and preach it and teach it. So, Father, we want you to be honored in this time now as we close. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.